If you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for the entire month of April as we focus on what the Bible has to say about the resurrection. And I cannot think of a more relevant topic during this time as we live in a world where 1.7 million people have tested positive for the coronavirus and over 100,000 people have died of COVID-19. And all of us face the possibility of illness or death. We face the possibility of loss of our jobs or loss of income. And we've been living with the reality that we are confined to our homes in quarantine. We have had cherished events canceled. And so we find ourselves living in this world. And as we face these things, the world around us, and if we're honest, even in our own hearts, we're asking questions like, why is there so much death and suffering in the world? Is there any hope for mankind? How can I know everything is going to be okay? Well, I want you to know that the text we're looking at today has answers to those questions. And I want you to be listening for those so that we will have hope in our own hearts and we'll be able to offer that hope to the people around us. So please give your attention now to the reading of God's Word as I read 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 12. Hear now God's Word. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you answer the questions that we have on our hearts. And I pray that you would be willing to give us surety of those answers and that you would give us a hope as you would be willing to come by your spirit right where we are now and that you would be willing to use the preaching of the word to give great hope and comfort to your people. And Father, I ask that you'd be willing to do that even through the sin-stained lips of a foolish preacher. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to ask those questions with you today that the world around us is asking, that we're asking in our own hearts, and then just look and see how the scripture answers those questions. That first question, why is there so much death and suffering in the world? Why is that the case? 
Well, the text gives us answers to those questions. In verse 21, we read, For since death came through a man. And then verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die. You see, verse 21 says, death came through a man. There was a time death did not exist, but it came through one man. And verse 22 identifies that man as Adam, the first man who's mentioned in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis. So since our text is pointing us for the answer to the question of where death came from, points us back to Genesis, let's consider those first few chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1, we read where God created all things, out of nothing, by the power of his word, in the space of six days, and all very good. You see, death and suffering did not exist in the beginning when God made all things good. But if you keep reading in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, we read where God put the man, Adam, in the garden and told him he was free to eat from any tree of the garden. But in Genesis 2 and verse 17, he says, But there's this one tree that you may not eat from. And if you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Genesis 2 and verse 17. That's the first reference to death in the Bible. You see, death did not exist in the beginning. We were made to live in the perfection of Eden and to live forever in a world without death and without suffering. And God created people to live in that fashion. You know, we often say that death is a natural part of life. And I suppose that makes sense to us because we've never known a person who did not die. And death seems to be so familiar and such a part of the life around us. But the Bible tells us that that is not the way it was from the beginning. That death is not a natural part of God's good creation that death is an unnatural intrusion into God's good creation. And if you think about that, I will bet your own experience confirms that to be true. Whether it is a funeral where you go to a viewing and you see someone's lifeless body there, so many times our reaction is, that's not right. The world is broken. That is not the way things were supposed to be. Or just think about the questions that we all have in our minds and that our culture is asking. I mean, the assumption behind that question, why is there so much death and suffering in the world? The assumption behind that question is death and suffering is not right. That is not the way things should be. So even the questions that we ask show that we were made to live in the perfection of Eden. So if death did not exist from the beginning, if that's not the way God designed things, then what happened? Well, if you keep reading in the story, when you get to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve do eat the fruit from that tree that God said not to eat. And as a result, death and suffering and many of the difficult things that we face now came into the world. Shame came into the world as the man and the woman realized they were naked and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. Fear entered the world as they heard God coming and they hid from him. Um, blame came into the world as the man said to God, the woman that you gave me, she's the one that made me eat the fruit. And Eve said, the serpent deceived me. Then 
Pain came into the world, pain in childbearing, pain in our jobs. Hate came into the world as there was enmity placed between the woman and her offspring and the serpent and his offspring. Decay or corruption came into the world as thorns and thistles would pop up where we had cleared the land for crops. Or God said to the man, you came from dust and to dust you will return. So decay and corruption and yes, death entered the world as a result of Adam and Eve disobeying God. In fact, things are broken and messed up because humans have not lived life the way God designed it to be lived from the beginning in the garden. You see, God created all things good. And there's been a corruption of God's good creation as a result of our not living the way God designed us to live. Romans chapter 8 and verse 21 tells us that God's good creation is in bondage to corruption. And that as a result of the fall, it doesn't work the way it was designed to work. And that's why we have things like death and decay and pain and suffering as a result of life not working the way it was designed to work. You know, we live in a culture that's confused by this pain and suffering and by the death that we see now. And the Bible has answers to those questions. And so let me ask you this question. Are you in God's Word? Are you spending time in the Word? You see, God's Word is how we best make sense of the world around us. And it's the best way for us to reach out to a world that is confused by the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and the death that is occurring at this time. But for us to be able to pass on the hope that we ourselves have, we have to know what God's Word says so that we have hope. And then we have to be willing to speak about what God's Word says to the people who are around us. We have to be willing to say, look, God created all things good. Things are broken and messed up not because God doesn't care or because He's not all-powerful or because God's not trustworthy. Things are broken and messed up because we refuse to live life the way God designed it to be lived. And as a result, God's good creation has been corrupted and death and pain and suffering have entered the world. That's the answer to that question that we have in our own hearts and that we hear in the culture around us. Which leads us to that next question, right? Is there any hope for mankind? Where would we turn for hope? Now I want you to think about this with me. Because if things are broken and messed up and pain and suffering and death entered the world because we didn't live the way God designed us to live, then you may think that the answer to the brokenness is for us to live life like God designed it to be lived. And I will say that I would agree there is less brokenness in the world when we live the way God designed us to live. There is less brokenness in the world if we don't murder one another if we don't lie to one another, if we don't steal from one another. There's less brokenness in the world when spouses are faithful to one another. So I do agree there's less brokenness if we live life the way God designed it to be lived. But make no mistake, 
Our good behavior is not the answer to humanity's problems because there is much brokenness in the world and it's impossible for us to live up to God's law and to God's demands, even though it is the safe path for us. So our hope is not in our good behavior. Our hope is in the fact that another came and lived life the way God designed it to be lived in our place. You see, God in the person of his son put on flesh and came into the world. And Jesus lived life the way that it was designed to be lived. He lived the life that I should have lived in my place. And he died the death that I deserved for my sin in my place. So that we could be made right with God and then God raised him from the dead. And it's the resurrection of Jesus, the text says, that gives us great hope. But what hope is it? that the resurrection of Jesus gives us. What is that hope for mankind? And I want to be very clear about this because sometimes preachers are the worst about being guilty of telling people what they want to hear. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says that folks will gather around them teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And I want to be sure I communicate the truth and exactly what it is that is our hope in the resurrection of Christ. Let me begin with what that hope is not. The resurrection of Jesus is not God's promise to us that we will have a great American economy. That is not where our hope lies. The resurrection of Jesus is not God's promise to us of our personal wealth or personal affluence. In fact, there are some people who follow God who are very affluent and some people who don't follow God at all who are very affluent. And vice versa, there are people who are very righteous who are rich and people who are righteous who are not. I think of Jesus himself, the only perfect man who ever lived, who said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, yet the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he died penniless, even though he was perfect. So don't let anyone tell you that righteousness leads to riches, because that is a lie, and that is not what the resurrection guarantees for us. In fact, the resurrection does not guarantee us perfect personal health in this life. It does not guarantee us that we will not die. In fact, this passage says that people do die who are in Christ Jesus. So what is our hope? What is it that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees to us? Well, look with me at the second half of those verses that we looked at before, verse 21 and verse 22. We read there, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Our hope that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees to us is that last line that we just said in the Apostles' Creed earlier. When we said that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. You see, the Bible tells us, and the resurrection of Jesus guarantees, that those in Christ will also rise again to live on a renewed earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, Revelation 21 tells us. Revelation 7 says, never again will we hunger, never again will we thirst. 
Now, as you hear that, you may have questions about the resurrection and our resurrection, like the resurrection that Jesus had. And Paul anticipates questions about the resurrection there in verse 35 of our text, where he says, someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of bodies will they come? And then Paul answers those questions, beginning in verse 37 of our text, he uses an illustration of planting seed. And he says that the seed planted in the ground is not at all like what comes up out of the ground in order to make the point that the bodies we put into the ground won't be at all like the bodies that are resurrected and come up out of the ground. And then in verse 40, he has an illustration about heavenly bodies, such as the sun and stars and how they're more glorious than earthly bodies in order to make the point that our resurrection body that comes up out of the ground will be much more glorious than the bodies that we put into the ground. And then Paul sort of reaches the apex of his argument, the zenith, the crescendo of what he's saying in verses 42 and 43 of the text. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying that these bodies that we have now are perishable. That means that they die. But when we put these bodies that die into the ground, they will be raised up when Jesus comes back as bodies that are imperishable, bodies that will not die. Paul says the bodies that we put in the ground, that they will be sown in dishonor in that we use these bodies as vehicles to live life in a way that God did not design it to be lived, in a way that dishonors Him. That these hands, that this tongue, that these parts of my body I used to dishonor God, that we will have resurrection bodies that are raised in glory, and that we use our bodies to glorify God perfectly. Or Paul says that these bodies we have now will be sown in weakness. They will be put in the ground because they break down, because they get viruses and decay and die. But we'll be raised up with bodies that have power, that do not decay, bodies that do not break down, bodies that do not die. That is our hope. And what a message we have for those who are struggling with illnesses or with pain, with the fear of those things. We have that good news. We have that hope that God created all things good. And our not living life the way that it was designed to be lived have brought illness and pain and death into this world. But the good news is that God will fix what we have broken for those who are in Christ, one day we will get new bodies that will not get illnesses, that won't feel pain, that will not suffer, and that will not die. There are many benefits to living life in this world the way that God designed it to be lived. But ultimately, our hope is not in this world. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 tells us, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. You see, nothing this world has to offer will ever ultimately satisfy any of us. Our hearts will remain restless 
until we find our rest in him. We were made for relationship with God. And we will never find that rest. We will never find peace until we find it in him. Will you come to him today? Will you walk with him? Will you live life with him? Will you speak to him in prayer? Will you listen to him and submit to his word as he speaks to you? As I talk about these things, you may be thinking to yourself, well, how can I know this is right? How can I be sure? How can I know that God is going to make all things right? How can we be sure of that? Well, Paul mentions some assurance here in the text, and he does it in a funny sort of way. He refers to Jesus twice by saying that Jesus is the first fruits. Did you see that in verse 20 of the text? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And again, in verse 23, he says, But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. What does Paul mean when twice he refers to Jesus as the first fruits? Well, the people of God, the Israelites, had celebrated the feast of the first fruits for thousands of years by this time. You see, when God used Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt and as they were headed to the promised land, in Leviticus chapter 23, God tells Moses that they are to celebrate this feast of the first fruits when he gives them the promised land. Listen to what God says to Moses in Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. Now, what's going on here in Leviticus 23? Well, God is saying, look, I'm going to give you the land. You're going to conquer the people there, and it's going to be your land. And as you get there, you're going to live in so much peace, you'll be able to plant crops, and you'll be able to harvest them. And as the people plant crops and they harvest them, God says, here's what I want you to do. When you get the first part of the harvest, which is usually in the springtime of the year, usually barley in this part of the world, take a sheaf of the grain to the priest, and he is to wave it before the Lord on the day after the Sabbath. And then they were to have a feast together, and God tells them what they can eat together to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. Now, what was God teaching his people in their celebration of the first fruits? Basically, he was teaching them to say, Thank you, God, for these first fruits of the harvest. You gave us the land as you promised. Now you've been faithful to give us these first fruits. So now we know, we have a certainty that you will be faithful to provide us with a great harvest at the end of the season. So how is Jesus the first fruits? What's the picture there? Well, basically, what we're being taught to say, if Jesus is the first fruits, we're to say, thank you, God, that you've been so faithful to us, that you have blessed us, you've kept your promise and, and sent the Messiah, sent the one that you had promised who would make all things right, and you have raised him from the dead as the first fruits. And because you have raised that one man, your son, from the dead as the first fruits of all creation, 
then we know there will be a bountiful harvest of a resurrection of all who are in Christ, a resurrection of all God's children at the end of the age. That's what God is saying. That's what Paul is conveying when he says that Jesus is the first fruits. That's how we know that God will keep his promises to his people. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. You're discouraged by the sin in your own life and you know your faithfulness is not the answer to your problems. Maybe you're discouraged by the brokenness of the world all around us and you sense that the answer is not found in the world all around us. And certainly it is appropriate to grieve those things. We should grieve those things. If a day is coming when God will wipe every tear from our eyes, that means in this day it is appropriate to cry tears and to grieve these losses. However, Christians are described as a grieving yet always rejoicing people. And we rejoice because we have the surety of what God has already done. Jesus is the first fruits. And while it is true that God created all things good and that the world has been corrupted because we have not lived life the way God designed it to be lived, there is more to the story because Jesus has already been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all creation. Jesus is the first fruits means that Jesus reigns victorious over sin and death and decay and pain and suffering. Jesus is the first fruits means that God has already started that process of reversing the effects of the fall. Jesus is the first fruits means that God has begun redeeming what we messed up. And Jesus is the first fruits means that our God is just getting started. The resurrection of Jesus is only the beginning of God's good work to make all things new. So when you get discouraged about the brokenness in the world around us, remember what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. And know that because God has raised him from the dead, we can have confidence that he will make all things new at the conclusion of all things. This should be a cause for great hope and great joy and great optimism, even as we grieve the things that we have lost. But I want you to know that this hope we have is not just something that strengthens us in the future. This hope that we have in the resurrection of Christ is something that can give us great endurance and perseverance in the here and now. I want to close with an illustration that I heard years ago that has stuck with me over the years and really helped me a lot. And I pray that it'll be helpful for you as well. It's really a thought experiment of how the certainty of a great future can empower us to endure great hardship today. If you would imagine there are two people and both of them are working a very difficult, very messy, very backbreaking, menial task as they have this job that they've been given. Imagine both are paid meager wages that barely allow them to survive. But imagine one worker is promised at the end of one year they will get a bonus of $15,000. But the other worker 
is promised at the end of this back-breaking job for one year that they'll be giving a bonus of $15 billion. I wonder, how would that change in what they're promised in the future? How would that change the way they work in the everyday grind? I imagine the one that's only promised $15,000 at the end of the year may grumble a lot, probably complain about the job. They may even lose hope and quit along the way because they decide it's just not worth it to go on in these circumstances. But I imagine the other person who's in the same difficult job, who's facing the same difficult circumstances, I can imagine that person has the ability to whistle while they work. And that even when it gets really tough, they have that ability to dig in and to endure and to persevere, knowing that each day they are one day closer to having everything that they could ever ask for or imagine. That's a good illustration of what we have because what we're promised in this text is far greater than any amount of money. It's far greater than anything money can buy. It is greater than all we could ask or imagine. And knowing, having that sure certainty in the future enables us to really dig in and endure and to persevere because we know each day we are one day closer to having everything we could ever ask or imagine. Let me pray for us that God would use that hope to encourage us and to help us to endure in the here and now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you answered the questions that we are asking in our hearts. Thank you for what you have done in your son. And I pray that the hope that you give to us that that would enable us to endure and to persevere even as we face difficult times every day. And I pray that you would encourage us with that reality, that each day we are one day closer to more than we could ever ask or imagine. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.